Hi, my name is Catherine. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 33:18 through 20. Moses said, "Show me your glory, I pray." And he said, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy." But he said, "You cannot see my face, for no one shall live. Uh, shall <laughs> for no one shall see me and live." The Lord of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Kim. The New Testament reading is found in Romans eleven thirty-three through thirty-six. God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge are so deep; they are as mysterious as His judgments, and they are as hard to track as His paths. Who has known the Lord's mind, or who has been His mentor, or who has given Him a gift and has been paid back by Him? All things are for Him and through Him. And for him,、uh, may the glory be to him forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Kyle.、Uh, thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John one ten through thirteen. The light was in the world, and the world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize the light. The light came to his own people, and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become children of, to become God's children, born not from blood, nor from human desire or passion, but born from God. The gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, thank you、uh, that you are light. That you dispel all darkness, and so we pray that as we gather together and we read and study your scriptures, that the light of your truth and your goodness and your glory would shine through, and that it would dispel darkness in our lives and cause change to happen. That we might go into the world and be the light of the world for the sake of your name and glory. In Jesus' name, we pray. And all God's people said, "Amen." Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is up at New Life North,、uh, our mothership congregation. This morning, he'll be back next week、uh, for four weeks straight. But he's up there this morning. We're glad to have you. If you're visiting with us again, we're absolutely delighted that you are here. When I was a sophomore in high school, I had my first girlfriend. And like all high school relationships, or most high school relationships, I should say, it ended badly.、Uh, at that time, we didn't have email or text, so I didn't get the breakup message that way. Instead,、uh, my first girlfriend broke up with me in the high school cafeteria on February fifteenth. <laughs> Later that day. She immediately began dating a senior、uh, who was known for his lack of hygiene. <laughs> Obviously, whatever romantic gestures I tried on February 14th didn't really work out so well. A couple weeks after that, I remember going to a basketball game, and this gentleman sat down near me in the stands, and immediately begins talking about his new girlfriend and their relationship. And as a sophomore boy, I just began to. Be- 
become increasingly angry the longer they talked. And so my friend Ted looked over at me and he said, hey man, let's just go. Let's just, let's leave and go find something else to do. Ted lived close to the high school, so we just got in his car and went to his place. And I am fuming mad out of the sense of, you know, hurt and rejection and betrayal and all those kind of things that you feel in those moments. And in the middle of kind of all of our conversation, I realized I needed to go to the bathroom. So I'm at Ted's house, and Ted's family wasn't particularly religious, but I I go into the bathroom, and there in the loo, (laughs) in shining, beautiful (laughs) cross-stitch, is this verse, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself quietly under control. (laughs) Like, yes, Lord, I hear you. (laughs) This was really the first time for me that I ever remember kind of experiencing God or hearing God through the Bible. In fact, I wasn't even a Christian at the time. (laughs) But I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that's clear. Like, I know what to do with that. And began this sort of, you know, moment for me of going, okay, well, maybe the Bible does have something to say about life and about how we live. It was just maybe a month or two months later that I actually became a follower of Jesus. But I quickly realized as a new believer trying to read the Bible that not every passage of Scripture was as clearly applicable as this one was. (laughs) I remember more often than not opening the Bible and going, I do not have a clue what this person is saying or what I should do with this. You know, you're trying to read Leviticus, and you think, I'm not washing any entrails anytime soon, so I don't really know how I'm supposed to live in light of animal sacrifices. And really, as I kind of continued in following Jesus and going into ministry, I kept encountering this more and more and more and finding I don't know what this means and I don't know what to do with it. It was really one of the driving forces for me that actually sent me to seminary was saying, I really want to be able to study and understand the text in a different way. But there was a moment for me, kind of in the midst of studying the Bible, that I found great comfort and great joy in approaching the Bible when I read this in 2 Peter. So 2 Peter's writing, he says, Consider the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as our dear friend and brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Speaking of these things in all his letters, some of his remarks are hard to understand. (laughs) And people who are ignorant and whose faith is weak twist them to their own destruction just as they do the other scriptures. And we're thinking, well, wait a minute. This is Peter. Peter that walked with Jesus. Peter the apostle. Peter the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Peter the first century Greek-speaking friend of Paul. Peter who wrote part of the Bible. And Peter doesn't have a clue what Paul's saying half the time. He's like, what is he saying? That there's a sense that sometimes scriptures are really clear and easy to apply. And there are other times that are scriptures that are just hard for us to understand. And in the midst of the hard to understand, there's a little bit of a danger that we can twist them and take them in all sorts of different places that they were never meant to go. I think if we were able to take Peter out for coffee and say, hey, Peter, could you tell us like an example of what you mean by this? Like, what's one of these passages that are hard to understand? I think that he would immediately say Romans chapter 9 through 11. 
the passages that we're going to look at today. That these passages in particular are some of the most complicated, confusing, and controversial passages in the entire New Testament. There is a lot going on here. For example, it's in these passages that Paul is talking about Israel and foreknowledge and election and how these things all relate to salvation and to Jesus. It's in these passages that he either quotes or alludes or echoes the Old Testament 45 times at least. There are all of these layers of him bringing in Israel's story and retelling the story of the Old Testament in Israel in ways that are absolutely mind-blowing and beautiful, but really difficult to track and to follow. It's these passages whose bad interpretations have been twisted toward distorted views of who God is and whose really bad interpretations have led to lots of increase in anti-Semitism have led to this kind of maltreatment of the Jewish people. It's better interpretations of these that have led to all sorts of historical and theological debates about the relationship between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, bringing up all sorts of questions about, okay, what is happening here? Is this, is this God doing this? Is this people doing this? Is it somehow in between? Is this free will? Is this what is happening? And how do we make sense of all of these passages. We are certainly not going to resolve all of that today in the next 25 minutes. It's going to be absolutely impossible. But what I want to do is I want us to take a macro look at these chapters. And the goal of our time together this morning is not really to sort of sort out all the details and the doctrines and all of the debates around each of the different things that Paul is saying in the midst of this. But then their goal in reading this passage, as it is in any passage, is simply for us to try to grasp a wider view of the, of the God of the gospel in order that we might have a greater understanding of his grace and his grace might have a greater hold on us and that something might change and transform in who we are and how we go about living in the world. So that's what we're going to try to do today, is kind of framing this within that context. So Romans chapter 9 through 11 really is kind of a, a, a section all of itself within the book of Romans. The first eight chapters are really Paul talking about how the gospel, how the good news about what God has done in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus is God's power of salvation to everyone who believes, to both Jew and to Gentile. And as Pastor Glenn said last week, chapter 8 sort of ends with this climactic crescendo, I cannot say that word this morning, about the love of God. And the way they described it last week is the God whose love won't let go. It's really this beautiful articulation of God's covenant faithfulness, the fact that God is faithful to the promises that he makes which again raises the question for Paul, then what about Israel? What do we do with Israel in light of Jesus? Paul keeps circling back around to this question that in light of Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, what does that mean for God's relationship with Israel? Does Israel still matter? Or is God done with them in 
some way. And for Paul, what's at stake in these questions are several things. First of all, what's at stake, and I don't think we can emphasize this enough, but for the first thing that's at stake for Paul in answering this question is actually the unity of the church in Rome. That this church, as we said all the way back in the beginning, began as, the, as a completely Jewish community. Jews who had come to believe in Jesus on Pentecost had gone back to Rome and begun to sort of meet and worship together as Jews who believed in Jesus. And eventually, as it happened everywhere, the gospel crossed this ethnic boundary and Gentiles began to respond to Jesus. And now you have a church form that's a multi-ethnic family and trying to live together, people who once were enemies, now trying to live together in and through and under the life of Jesus. Well, what ended up happening is there becomes this conflict in Rome that a lot of Jews are associated with, so the Roman emperor kicks all the Jews out of the city, which then creates a situation, now this church that began as all Jewish, became Jew and Gentile, is now all Gentile. And then eventually another emperor comes up and allows the Jews to come back into the city. So Jews are coming back into Rome. They're going back to the church that they started. And now they find the church is entirely Gentile and they find themselves on the outside. And you have all of these divisions and debates and conflicts that are coming up inside of the church in Rome out of Jewish and Gentile relationships. So for Paul, when he's writing Romans, he's not writing Romans as a systematic theology, as many people often think of. He's writing it as a situational theology. He's writing to a group of people who are being torn apart at the seams who God actually meant to live together. And he's saying, hey, that your pride and arrogance against one another is actually counter the very work of the gospel, and it is antithetical to the community that's supposed to be shaped by the gospel. And he's trying to sort of broker a reconciliation between these two groups. So that's the first thing that's at stake. The second thing is that these are Paul's people. And when Paul's talking about Israel, he's talking about his flesh and blood. He's talking about his family. We oftentimes forget that Jesus is Jewish and Paul is Jewish. So this is them talking about their very people. This is how Paul talks about it in this letter. And you can hear a little bit of his heartbreak and his heart cry. He says, I have great sadness and constant pain in my heart. I wish I could be cursed, cut off from Christ, if it helped my brothers and sisters, fellow Jews, who are my flesh and blood relatives. Later on, he says this. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire is for Israel's salvation. That's my prayer to God for them. See, in these chapters, we actually get a really beautiful look at Paul's heart for his people. That this is Paul praying. This is Paul lamenting. This is Paul saying, I have great anguish in my heart. And my guess is that there's a lot of us that can relate. That if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, that maybe you find yourself feeling the same thing. That you have parents or siblings or cousins or aunts or uncles. And when you think about them, there's this great anguish in your heart saying, I just want my family to know who Jesus is. I want my family to experience the same thing that I have. Or maybe it's not your family. Maybe it's a spouse. 
Maybe it's a really close friend. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. We all have people in our lives who have yet to experience the grace and the goodness of God in and through Jesus, and our heart breaks for them. And this is Paul, heartbroken and heart crying, saying, I am willing to sacrifice whatever it takes, and I will continue to pray in hope of Israel's salvation. This is the heartbeat behind Paul in writing all of this. It's something I think a lot of us can relate to. The third thing that's at stake here for Paul is God's character. That over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Romans, Paul is trying to demonstrate for his people, for his audience, that God is a faithful God. That God is faithful to his promises. Because there's a sense that God's character is under question here. Listen to some of the questions that drive this section of Romans 9 through 11. It says, but it's not as though God's word has failed. It's this question, wait a minute, has God's word failed? Has something happened here where God's promises have been broken in some capacity? What's going on here? Since so many Jews have not accepted Jesus, what is going on? Has God's promises been broken? Has he somehow done something? Or secondly, it goes on and says, so what did we say? Is this unfair on God's part? He says, absolutely not. But he's saying as if the idea is if God's word has failed, if he has broken his promises, or God has in some way proven himself to be unfair or unjust, then how is it that we can trust him? If God has been unfair, unjust, or unfaithful to Israel, what does that mean for us? Does that mean those of us who are not Israel can trust that he's going to be faithful to the promises that he's made to us in and through Jesus? Or is it sometime later God's going to say, eh, you know, I, I'm done with that. Let's try something different now. And going and breaking his promise or proving to be unfair or unjust. And so Paul, throughout the entire book of Romans, is proving over and over and over and over and over again how God has proven himself to be faithful, how he is the faithful God. And so we come to all of this sort of things being tied together. We're going to focus today on the end of chapter 11 and seeing how Paul kind of weaves all of these things together. Um, But he begins chapter 11 this way, and he says this. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. See, Paul begins the whole conversation saying, hey, don't forget, there are some Jews who have accepted Jesus. That, that in and of itself is a sign of God's faithfulness to his people. That he has preserved a remnant by grace just as he has done over and over and over and over and over again throughout Israel's history. But he says, but I recognize that others have stumbled. That massive amounts of God's people have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So he goes on, he asks this question in Romans eleven eleven. So I ask, Have they stumbled so far as to fall? Have they stumbled so far as to fall completely away, to fall into ruin or into destruction? This is by no means, but but through their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their stumbling means riches for the world 
And if their defeat means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Let's get down a couple verses. It says, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? See, he says, yes, some of Israel has stumbled. The word there is actually translated everywhere else in the New Testament as trespass or sin. He later will talk about Israel's rejection of Jesus or Israel's unbelief or Israel's disobedience and talking about the problem that these things create within the context of the covenant and their relationship with God. But the driving question he has is have they gone too far? Is it too late? And I think it's a question, again, that so many of us think about for ourselves or for other people that we know, right? Have I gone so far? Have I stumbled so far away from the faith that I knew at one point? Have I stumbled so far away from the intimacy that I once experienced with Jesus? Has my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister or my friend or my spouse or my coworker or my neighbor, have they stumbled so far? Is it too late for them at this point? Is the opportunity, the window in which they might come to Jesus or come back to Jesus, has that closed? Is the door now shut? Is there now no longer any hope for them? Because there's so many times we think about those relationships and we can see it feels so dark. It feels so distant. It feels like there is no hope. And Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. They haven't stumbled so far. It's not too late. For any of us in the room, you haven't stumbled too far. It is not too late. For the people that you love, it's not too late for them. Where does Paul get this hope from? From resurrection. He says, what would it be like? Nothing more than like raising from the dead. He says, this is the kind of business that God's in to begin with. God is a God who death is not too much for. So if death is not too much for him, then nothing else is either. This is the God who raises from the dead. So with him, there is always hope. Because he can do the impossible in our lives. He can do what it is that we can't even think or imagine. And then he goes on to say, in fact, God has already done the unimaginable through Israel's stumbling. He says that God has used Israel's stumbling to fulfill Israel's election. That God has used Israel's stumbling to fulfill Israel's election. If we think all the way back to the calling of Abraham, God chose Abraham and Abraham's offspring. He elected this family to bless all of the families of the earth. He chose one family in order to be a blessing to all families. He chose one family to bring all families into his family. And this is exactly what God is doing in and through Jesus and through Israel's response. That somehow in the midst of Israel's rejection of Jesus, that now the doors have been flung open, the church has moved beyond those ethnic boundaries, and all of the families of the earth are streaming into the church. 
fulfilling the very thing that God called Israel to do and to be. That somehow in the midst of this, God is even using Israel's stumbling to fulfill their election. And if this is how he can use their rejection of Jesus, imagine how he can use their acceptance of him. Imagine what is possible for a God who can fulfill their election through their rejection. Imagine what he can do through their acceptance. This is exactly what Paul's saying, is that there is hope because God raises from the dead. And even in the places of darkness and despair where it looks like there is no hope, God's at work doing the unimaginable already in and through. He goes on and he says this. He says, according to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But according to God's choice, they are loved for the sake of their ancestors. God's gift and calling can't be taken back. Once you were disobedient to God, but now you have mercy because they were disobedient. In the same way, they have been disobedient because of the mercy you've received. So now they can receive mercy too. God has lapped up all people in disobedience in order to have mercy on all of them. In order to have mercy on all of them. Romans 9 through 11 is actually bookended, begins and it ends with discussions about God's mercy. In the very next section, the last section of the book, Romans 12 through 16, begins this way, therefore, in view of God's mercy. See, all of this is being tied together by God's mercy. And if we miss that in the middle of any of the discussions, we've actually missed everything that Paul has to say. That Paul's entire discussion here is about the God who shows mercy and the way in which he is doing that. And he's saying that God has actually used Israel's stumbling to show everyone mercy, to show mercy to everyone. Now, when I think of the word mercy, my immediate sort of context, the first thing I think of is that childhood game where you like join hands with somebody right? AJ, come here. You guys remember this game? Oh, why did I choose AJ? <laughs> this, this is not going to go well. Where you, you know, you lock hands with one another, and then there's a go, and then you basically just try to like twist and distort and inflict as much pain as possible on the other person until the point is where they can't take the pain any longer, and they cry out, mercy, mercy or or, or uncle, right? Okay. Yeah, mercy or uncle. Thank you, AJ. Everybody, AJ. I think this is often how we think of mercy, is that mercy is something that's extended to someone only after we've, ex- we've asserted our supremacy over them through strength, right? We've asserted our supremacy through a demonstration of strength, typically done by inflicting unbearable pain on that person, and exposing their weaknesses. And then when we extend mercy, what we do is we, re- re- we release them from the immediate effects of our power, but we maintain control through fear. They don't want to play the game with us anymore. And I think sometimes we think that's what God's like. That God sort of grabs us by the hands, twists our arms backwards, and begins to put as much pressure on our wrists as possible and says, hey, accept me or else. 
begins, like that this is what God is doing is he's forcing and manipulating and overpowering people to try to get them to accept Jesus at great threat and at great fear in order to get them to follow in his ways. This is oftentimes the way that we think about God in our culture is that God is some sort of authoritarian meanie who's just wanting to show off his power in strength for the sake of asserting his supremacy over people and over things. But that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God revealed in Jesus by any means. See, if anything, the way the gospel tells this story is that we have actually held hands with sin. And that we have gotten into a relationship with sin who's exerted its power over us and is distorting our bodies and pressing us into pain and will eventually assert its supremacy all the way to death to show and maintain its power and its control over us through fear. But God in his mercy became human and came into the situation and released our hands and submitted himself to the pain of sin and death. And through submitting himself to weakness, then demonstrated his power in the resurrection and defeated our enemy for the sake of us in the world. That God is a God who shows mercy not through exercising strength, but God is a God who shows mercy through weakness by coming as a servant, by coming humbly, by coming in love, by coming and taking our pain and our shame upon himself, by submitting himself to the powers of the world in order to reveal those powers for the evil that they actually are and to defeat them through the resurrection. Rather than inflicting pain on us, he submitted to it. Rather than exposing our weaknesses, he embraced them. And he extends mercy to us by releasing us from the power of sin and inviting us into a relationship of love, not of fear. That this is what God's mercy looks like. And so as Paul goes on, he talks about that this is fundamentally who God is. He quotes our Old Testament reading from the day and says, I'll have mercy on whomever I have mercy. And God chooses actually to have mercy on those who choose Jesus. That Jesus is God's means of mercy for everyone. That this is how God chooses to show his mercy in the world is in and through Jesus. To both Jew and Gentile alike, Jesus is the means of God's mercy. You want to know what mercy looks like? Look at Jesus. You can begin to see what God is doing in our lives. He goes on to say that this is actually the great mystery of the gospel, that Jesus is how God has fulfilled his promises to Israel and created for himself a multi-ethnic family, all brought together through mercy and grace and love. This is who God is. This is what God's doing. God is fundamentally the God who shows mercy, not through exerting supremacy through strength, but by demonstrating the supremacy of love through sacrificial, self-giving love displayed in weakness on the cross. 
That's the mercy of God. This is who he is. And so Paul concludes with these words. He says, God's riches, his wisdom, and his knowledge are so deep. They are what C.S. Lewis would call deep magic or deeper magic. They are mysterious as his judgments, and they are as hard to track as his paths. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his mentor, or who has given him a gift and has been able to pay him back? No, instead, all things are from him and through him and for him. May the glory be to him forever. Amen. Paul breaks out into song. He doesn't know what else to do. He actually begins this entire section in lament. Remember that very opening thing? He says, my heart is broken. My heart is crushed. I am in deep agony and deep prayer for my people. And he ends the whole section in praise as he reflects on the mercy of God and how it is that the God of resurrection can work mysteriously in and through Jesus to display mercy to everyone, he comes back and he says, really all I can do at this point is say, I can't fathom it all. What little bit that I can understand blows my mind. And so all I know to do is to worship and to praise. And when I understand the God of mercy... Worship is the appropriate response. In fact, as Paul goes on, it's really God's mercy Mercy should lead us both to humility and to worship. That this is ultimately what Paul is trying to teach the Romans, is not to live in this idea of pride and moral supremacy, Jew over Gentile or Gentile over Jew, but to all recognize God's mercy and to live in humility with one another. Earlier in this section, Paul actually told his Gentile audience, he says, do not be proud, do not brag, do not think more highly than yourself, than you ought to. He says over and over and over again, he's addressing pride in the community. He says to them, says, you have to understand that you've been grafted in to the family tree of Abraham. You don't sustain the root, but the root actually sustains you. So you've been grafted in. God in his mercy has brought you into his family. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Recognize the great root of Abraham that you've been grafted into in God's mercy. So I think humility begins for all of us in embracing, not despising our roots. Embracing where it is that we came from and where it is that God has brought us to. For some of us, that's recognizing for the church historically, we have not done a very good job of embracing our Jewish roots. Too often, more often than not, it's been the church who's been sort of the perpetuators of anti-Semitism. Rather than recognizing, no, we've been grafted into the family of Abraham. Abraham is our dad too. And embracing the entire Old Testament and the people of Israel and all that God has shown us in and through them and recognizing we've been made a part of God's family. For some of us, it's despising our very families of origin. We may have come from difficult places, difficult situations, places of brokenness and pain, maybe even abuse where we can look at it and we can't see anything good. And yet somehow God has shown us his mercy in there, just even bringing us to himself 
grafting us into a new family is a demonstration of his mercy in our lives. For some of us, we have some theological roots that we're not too excited about. I remember when I first got to seminary and people would ask me where I went to undergrad. I'd say, I went to undergrad in Oklahoma. Oh, where at? In Tulsa. Oh, where where at in Tulsa? University of Tulsa? No. Which school? I I went to Oral Roberts University. (laughs) There was something for me that recognized that there's part of that history and that heritage that got all kind of wrapped up in the word of faith, prosperity kind of stuff. I didn't want anything to do with, and I didn't want anyone to associate me with it. And yet, God used it in my life. It was a part of God's story in working in me and through me. So we all have a place that we came from. We all have soil that we've been planted in for at some point or another. We've all been grafted in in various ways. And whatever our past, our past is somehow a part of the story of God's mercy in our lives. And looking at that past and understanding who we are is a part of, part of who we are is where we came from. And seeing God's mercy in the middle of that. And then he says that humility should actually lead us to worship the God of mercy. That when we see the way that God has moved and worked and demonstrated his mercy throughout history and seen and demonstrated his mercy in our own lives, that that should not only create a deep sense of humility inside of us, but should lift our heads upward to worship the God who's fundamentally God who shows mercy to us in and through Jesus. So we turn our attention toward the table. I don't know if this is captured in any better way than the 18th century hymn writer, Charles Wesley. So Charles and his brother John were part of a revival movement in the Anglican church that eventually spun off and became Methodism. And Charles wrote some of the greatest hymns in the history of the church. And one of his hymns is called, And Can It Be? And he writes this in verses 2 and 3. He says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries, tries to understand the mystery and the grandeur and the glory of God, to sound the depths of love divine. But tis mercy all, let the earth adore.'" says, let angel minds inquire no more. Instead, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Tis mercy all. It's all mercy. Our entire story, what brought us to the room today, what brought us together, what grafted us into the family, what brings us to his table, tis mercy all, immense and free. And oh, our God, it found us somehow, displayed for us the mystery and the mercy of God that it might bring us to humility and cause us to lift our eyes in worship. Amen?